I'm reading from the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Father, this is your word. It is inspired by you, breathed by you, anointed by you, infallible. This is your word, O oh God, spoken through a man dedicated to you whom you call. So God, help us to have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church in this day. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. In uh, the book of Acts that Luke wrote, chapter 18, we see that Paul is on his second journey. It's about the year 52 AD. And that's actually about 17 years after his conversion on Damascus Road. And Luke writes and says that Paul had reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath 
he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And he testified that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. Here he is in Corinth. It said that many were believed and were baptized. But the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, don't be afraid, don't keep silent, for I'm with you. Um, he also said, no one is going to attack you, because everywhere that Paul went, that's what he would encounter. So as a result of that, Paul stayed one year and six months, it says, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them in the city of Corinth. In Acts 18, it goes a little bit further, and it talks about Apollos. It says, one who vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He was an Alexandrian Jew, eloquent man, orator, great and mighty in the scriptures. But yet he only knew the baptism of repentance from John, and Aquila and Priscilla called him aside and helped him, explained him, and showed him the way of God more accurately. And he went from Ephesus to Achaia and ended up in Corinth. We read in the opening of the book of Acts where Luke has given us this wonderful historical account. And at the end of this Pentecost sermon, we hear Peter saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah both Lord and Christ. Matter of fact, when uh, Peter and John were used to do that great miracle, the man who was crippled, who was at the gate beautiful, they got arrested and then they were sent out. The Lord allowed them to go and speak his name. They all came together because they heard the threats and the entire church prayed and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Well, the reason why I give those accounts of Paul and Apollos and Peter and the saints who call themselves servants, these men and these ministers know who was the Lord and who are the servants. Matter of fact, John MacArthur wrote a book in 2010 titled Slave. He said that the writers of the scriptures have chosen to use the word servants, or even bond servants, these love servants or love slaves, when in fact the word doulos, this servant, this minister, actually means slave. In the beginning of that book, someone who puts a commendation on it writes this. So much of our Christian walk is focused on self. How will this trial refine my faith, improve my character, or fit into a pattern for my good? Often when believers speak of a personal savior, they mean a savior who is personally committed to their health, to their success, and life fulfillment. But such a view couldn't be farther from the truth. In his new book, John MacArthur presents a powerfully riveting and truly eye-opening look at our relationship to the Lord Jesus. 
want to rise into a new level of trust and confidence in your master, then this is the book for you, writes Johnny Erickson Tata. Paul's first letter to the church of God in Corinth was to the saints who were in Corinth. He wrote an earlier letter, it says this in chapter 5, but apparently that letter was lost. And he had received a letter from them asking him his opinions on certain issues that arose amongst them. So he wrote 1 Corinthians to answer those questions, to address these problems, and also to tell him of his plan to visit them. In the midst of this letter that I just read, this first chapter, he says, I plead with you, stop fighting. Stop quarreling among yourselves. He says, I hear there's contentions. People from Chloe's household have sent this message to me and says that there are quarrels, there are dissensions, there are fightings among yourselves. This should not be. He says, the focus on what really matters there should not be what you're focusing on. They align themselves behind these various leaders and teachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter. There was internal divisions which caused strife, which actually hinders the gospel. It makes the church look ridiculous to those on the outside with all this infighting. Matter of fact, he wrote later on, and we see this in the third chapter, he says, for you're still carnal. He says, I wish that I could write to you, he says, but you're still like babes. For where there's envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Holiness, disputes, and divisions stand in opposition to each other. Matter of fact, James, in his epistle, asks, where do these quarrels or wars, where do these battles and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your own desires for pleasure, that war in your own members? All the Bible commentators, all those that I've read, said that Paul is writing this letter so that there would be unity in the church. He writes against schisms and sects and divisions and dissensions. And I agree with that. But I also think that there's a greater purpose. If you look at the first 10 verses in chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ, 10 times. 10 verses, 10 times. Jesus' name. Do you think that he had a purpose? <laughs> I think that was his purpose. I think what he wanted to do was magnify the Lord, an apostle of Jesus Christ, sanctified in Christ Jesus, who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace to you, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God concerning you for the grace God was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you be enriched in every way by him, the testimony of Christ confirmed in you, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm that you be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, 
called you into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I plead with you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten times in the first ten verses, I think that Paul is saying, hey, our focus needs to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on who he's about to name, Paul himself, or Apollos, or Cephas, who is Peter. His emphasis is on Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says. You know, growing up, my grandmother, my mother's mom, would say to me, Joey, you're so blessed you have Jesus' initials. <laughs> I said, Nana, Christ isn't his last name. She goes, oh, come on. <laughs> but see, that's one of the issues. As a matter of fact, when I began to focus on this, it brought me back to something I have not concentrate, concentrated on in a long time, is this name of Jesus. We say he's the name above all names. <laughs> but have I really embraced who he is? Or have I followed others? Jesus' name himself, we knew that there was a common name, Yeshua, Joshua, but it means Jehovah the Savior. Joseph and Mary were told that he shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus. And yes, his office as Christ, Christos, means the anointed one. He's the Messiah. In the Septuagint, that Greek rendering of the Old Testament is the equivalent of Christ. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, Jesus. How about the woman at the well? Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? <laughs> and then Lord, his title, who Paul spends so much time talking about here, the Lord, the Lord. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Adonai as Beth has just so wonderfully sang to us. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath to come. He's the one who's Lord. Elmer Towns writes a book titled The Names of Jesus. He's the, um, one of the co-founders of Liberty University. He said there are several rights that belong to Jesus as Lord. There's the right to respect, the right to be served, the right of disposal, and the right to rule and hold authority. Well, Lord was the title of deity to these Christians, and they loved saying his name. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says this in chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, Paul told those who at Corinth, I hear that some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. Others, I follow Peter or I follow Christ. It's like today. If we're naming the names of those who have been significant, even throughout Christian history, if we say, I follow Luther, or I follow Calvin, or I follow anyone for that matter, Wesley or Arminius, or as the Catholics say, I follow the Pope. <laughs> we're wrong. I went to a conference, Ligonier conference, a couple of years ago. It was the 500th anniversary of John Calvin's birth. And everybody was there quoting the institutes of John Calvin. And Calvin says this, and Calvin said that. And D.A. Carson, they said, D.A., what do you think about this matter? He says, the Bible says. <laughs> oh, I got that one. And listen, all these great men of God like Paul, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But it's not the following of these men that's going to create dissensions. It should lead us to Christ. It should lead us to Jesus. And he says there's infighting. Is Christ divided? I think the key to all of this, he said, is, was Paul crucified for you? No. It was Christ who was crucified. And that's the message. It's not about any of these individual teachers or leaders or orators, or great book writers. It's about Christ, because that's who they're writing about. If they were here today, Calvin would say, I know the remonstrants have said there are five points, and you know, okay, I agree with those things, but you know what? Your focus should be Jesus. He's the one who was crucified, not me. He's the one who did this work. He became man. You know, in the third chapter, Paul continued on, and he said this, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ, he goes on, I fed you milk because I couldn't give you meat. You're not able to bear it. Not even now. You're still carnal where there's envy, strife, divisions among you. Are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? Then he says this, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Then he goes on and says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're God's fellow workers, God's field, we're God's building. The mission of the church is to go and preach the gospel of God Make disciples, declaring Jesus is Lord, our Lord. Take the light of the glorious gospel into a dark world. Not to take and promote individual teachers and others who were servants and ministers of God. The gospel message is more than just a true story 
and a good way to live. It's the very power of God. And that's why Jesus Christ must be at the forefront. This is the Messiah. This is the Deliverer. He's the one that we should be saying, Lord. And as Bob read from Isaiah this morning, that's his name. <laughs> I am the Lord. There is no other. Archibald Brown, who is the successor to Spurgeon, that great preacher at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, said this in his book, The Face of Jesus Christ, The Person and Work of Our Lord. Archibald Brown said this, Christianity is all centered in a person. Conversion is not a mere change of human opinion. It's the devotion of heart to a person. A converted man or woman is not a man or woman who just changes their views concerning certain facts or theories or doctrines, but it's a man or a woman whose heart has become devoted to a living Christ. All your religion, if it's worth anything, will just be centered in a living, personal Jesus. And the one that he succeeded, Spurgeon, in a sermon titled, Jesus Our Lord, said this, Of all the dreams that ever deluded men, and probably of all blasphemies that are ever uttered, there has never been one which is more absurd and which is more fruitful in all manner of mischief than the idea that the Bishop of Rome can be the head of the Church of Jesus Christ. No, these popes die, and how could the church live if its head was dead? The true head ever lives, and the church ever liveth in him. And he continues and says, The church of God, in a very special manner, calls Jesus our Lord. For there is not, and there cannot be, any head of the church except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's awful blasphemy for any man on earth to call himself Christ's vicar and the head of the church. And it's usurpation of the crown rights of King Jesus for any king or queen to be called the head of the church. For the true church, true church of Jesus Christ can have no head but Jesus Christ himself. Spurgeon goes on to say, I'm thankful that there's no head to the church for which I'm a member except Jesus Christ himself, nor dare I be a member of any church which would consent to any headship but his. Well, what does this lordship mean? Elmer Towns continued to write in his book, Lordship means surrender. The greatest need in Christian circles is surrendering under the lordship of Christ, what he calls absolute surrender. If Christians would surrender themselves totally and absolutely to the lordship of Christ, we would see revisiting Acts chapter 2. We would see as they were persecuted that they went everywhere preaching the word of God. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He goes on to write and says, the key to the victorious Christian life is found in the surrender or yielding of oneself wholeheartedly to God. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Paul writes and he talks about those various aspects of what it means to declare that Jesus is Lord just in that Romans 6 alone. 
He says, you know, the doctrinal basis of their victory was that they were identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection, just like John wrote in his first epistle. I write these things to you so that you would know. That you would know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you'd have eternal life as he writes in his gospel. He talked about reckoning or yielding to present ourselves once and for all and also to obey, to continuously be obedient to the revealed and known will of God. And he says lordship is more than just even yielding. Lordship means control. I look at myself over my Christian life and I say, how did I lose it? How did I get away from what I believed in initially when I heard that gospel? What happened all of these years? How did I become so puffed up and so lost again? Well, I needed to repent because it's God who's in control. And when he's in control, then I'll deny myself or deny my flesh and then take up this cross. When he's in control, I'll find myself saying that no to the old man and yes to the new and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and not fulfilling the lusts of my own flesh. You know, MacArthur writes in that same book, Slave, that I quoted before, he says, genuine believers are characterized by a deep love for Christ. And that love inevitably manifests itself in obedience. By contrast, those who do not love the Lord, either in what they say or by how they live, evidence the fact that they don't belong to him. The only right response to Christ's lordship is wholehearted submission, loving obedience, and passionate worship. Those who give verbal assent to his deity, yet live in patterns of unrepentant disobedience, betray the hypocrisy of their profession. To them, the terrifying weight of Christ's question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, directly applies. As he warned the crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he described the dangers of hypocrisy by this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Clearly, not all who claim to know the Lord actually do. Lord, help us. Those who truly belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Rather than walking in the flesh, they now walk by the Spirit, being characterized by a growing desire to obey the Word of God. The Church of Jesus Christ, us as believers, need to return to lifting up Jesus, to magnifying Him, to exalting His name, proclaiming Him and Him crucified, Him resurrected, Him ascended into heaven, Him sitting at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, and one day, coming back to take his church, those that he sanctified, those that he set apart, and those that he called. Let's not say that we follow this person or that person. Let us say that we follow Jesus, the Messiah, 
our Lord. Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, forgive me for being a fool. I thank you for your word. I thank you for my wife. Even as she said on the car over here, she says, don't avoid the chiseling. <laughs> You've sent chiselers in my life, Lord, to refine me and to cut away things. And Lord, I'm still alive today, even though a couple of years ago I could have been killed with illness, yet you've been gracious to me. Help me, Lord, to continue on this narrow road and not to deviate and not to fall back to where I was. Just some religious guy. Lord, many of us become religious. We become like Pharisees or worse, Sadducees or those who are maybe Essenes or those who are revolting, looking for some kind of thing to happen in our government or whatever. Oh, God, help us to realize that you are the king. And we need to stop and make you Lord one more time and to bow our knee to you. Not just at the end, but now, oh God. Help us now as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's your supper, oh God. That's why those Corinthians were rebuked, oh Lord, as they came and they just ignored that time. They ran to eat and these love feasts were just love fests and they weren't really about you. They lost their first love. Lord, help us as we're so committed to doctrine and like you said to the church at Ephesus, you hate the Nicolaitans just like I do, but I have this one thing against you. You left your first love. Help us now, O oh God, to remember, to repent, and to return to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in your name, O oh God, that I pray. Amen.